Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, September 29th, 2022, the 617th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to everyone listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. And by doing that, you will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you don't want to all good, keep listening for free on a variety of internet based platforms. All I ask is that you please share the show with your friends. Now, yesterday was a very difficult day for the fake administration and their ability to speak about, honestly, anything. Kamala Harris, after being surprised about how close she was to the border of North Korea, also touted an alliance with North Korea. And that was certainly surprising news, but that was basically just an average day in the life of Kamala Harris. I'm kind of surprised her entire speech wasn't just her saying the word alliance over and over again, but somehow things were even worse for the fake president, Joe Biden. He was giving a speech at the White House conference on hunger, nutrition and health promoting legislation to end world hunger by guess what year 2030, just like the rest of the 2030 agenda. So Joe Biden is up there talking about how great everything will be as soon as we sign the United States of America up for more of the global communist agenda as laid out by the United Nations and the World Economic Forum Agenda 2030. And he attempted to go around the room, recognizing the people that were there, the people who were part of the effort. 
And in doing so, he chose to recognize a person who unfortunately wasn't there. Leaving aside how weak and mumbling the fake president sounds, the person he was searching for was Representative Jackie Walorski, who died almost two months ago. Her death didn't receive a lot of attention at the time, but there are some interesting aspects of it, so it's probably a good thing it's coming back up. It was reported that Congressman Jackie Walorski was actually working with Anne Heche on a project related to child sex trafficking. The circumstances of her death were a bit strange, so here's some background on that. The Elkhart County Sheriff's Office, and this is in Indiana, has concluded its investigation and released its final report on the August 3rd car crash that killed Representative Jackie Walorski and three others. The crash happened on State Route 19 south of Wakarusa. According to a press release, the sheriff's office said it was caused when the RAV4 SUV carrying Walorski crossed the center line while trying to pass another vehicle on a two-lane highway at an excessive speed. The RAV4 was being driven by staffer Zachary Potts. Police say a witness reported the SUV was behind an unidentified flatbed truck in the northbound lane. The RAV4 then slowed down to put distance between it and the truck before accelerating and swerving into the oncoming lane to pass. The SUV then collided with the southbound Buick driven by Edith Schmucker. Police say data from the RAV4's airbag control module shows it was traveling at 82 miles an hour, five seconds before the crash, and that the engine was at idle with the car coasting down to around 77 miles per hour, milliseconds before the airbags deployed. The module also recorded that the SUV was steered to the left consistent with the normal operation of the vehicle just before the crash, which matches up with the eyewitness account. Walorski, Potts, Schmucker, and communications director Emma Thompson were all killed in the accident. All four were wearing seatbelts. In addition, the sheriff's office says all four cell phones were examined and no evidence was found showing the phones were being used prior to or during the crash. The Elkhart County coroner has listed all four deaths as accidental due to the injuries sustained in the crash. Police had originally reported that Walorski was traveling south and was hit by a northbound driver but said the next day that they were mistaken. Now, this is pure speculation and one of those things that you just keep in the back of your mind. You don't choose to believe it. You don't hold on to it. You don't make a big deal about it. Just keep it in the back of your mind. It's a little weird that the police got the direction of the drivers backwards, but not a big deal, right? That sort of thing can happen. It's a little weirder that a staffer was driving a sitting congresswoman around with another staffer and he was worried about passing cars and making risky driving moves. A head-on collision in a passing situation is a bit of a strange thing to do when you're driving around your boss who's a congressman. But there's certainly not enough here to reach any sort of conclusion whatsoever, so you just keep it in the back of your mind and move on. What's important is that the fake president looked around the room and tried to call for someone who's been dead for almost two months. And it wasn't like he slipped up and forgot and then caught himself after realizing he had absolutely no idea why a dead congresswoman wasn't there. And then the fake president's press secretary had to answer questions about this in the afternoon yesterday. And Breitbart put together a nice little montage of her responses. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. Well, so what happened? he had already uh, planned to welcome 
the Congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. She was on top of mind. And she was a top of mind. And I think the American people out there who, you know, watch the briefing uh, from time to time, maybe at this moment, will understand when someone is at top of mind. As he was naming folks, he, she was on top of mind. I don't think it's all that unusual uh, to have someone top of mind. What I had said is that she was on top of mind. I just answered the question about her being on top of mind. Many of us have gone through uh, that particular uh, you know, time where someone is on top of mind. Sometimes when you have someone top of mind, they are top of mind, exactly that. She was on top of mind. Again, she was at the top of mind. So 13 times, Corinne Jean-Pierre says the phrase top of mind. Now, that's not some common phrase. That's the phrase they decided to use and repeat to make it seem like Joe Biden was actually just two with it. Corinne Jean-Pierre explained that Biden was expecting to see Jackie Walorski's family on Friday for the signing of the legislation. And so Walorski was top of mind. You know, the first thing Biden was thinking about, he was thinking about Walorski so much that in his mind, she was alive again. You know, that thing where you're just thinking about a person so much that you forget that they're dead. It happens all the time. We've all been there. Oh, wait, no, no one's ever done that without being senile and demented. Right, right. That does make more sense. Yeah, no one would ever do that sort of thing, especially not as the result of thinking about a person so much. Maybe the fake president has a sixth sense and it's so powerful that his other five senses have disappeared. But that actually wasn't the most disturbing thing Joe Biden said yesterday. This is from Post Millennial. Biden says democracy is at stake after Italians democratically elect right wing government. On Sunday, Georgia Maloney's Fratelli d'Italia claimed victory in Italy's federal elections with 26 percent of the vote, making history as the first female led party to win, as well as the most right wing government to be elected in the country since World War II. While many rejoiced, others expressed concern with U.S. President Joe Biden going so far as to suggest that Maloney presented a threat to democracy. I mean this sincerely, Biden said during a speech at a Democratic Governors Association reception. You're going to think this is a little out of whack what I'm going to talk about. But, you know, democracy is at stake. There's a case being made around the world, not just here, he continued. And there's an awful lot of folks who believe that democracies can't be sustained in the 21st century because... So much is changing in science and technology, the environment, a whole range of things that it's awful hard to reach a consensus in the short amount of time you have. And just to pause for a second, this is the most authoritarian mindset a person can have. There's too many issues. They're too big. There's too much complexity in the world. So we are not going to be able to reach consensus. Therefore, we need a top-down system where the people at the top can simply decide how it's going to be for everyone else. Then you don't have that problem of having to form consensus around anything. Now, if you're the sort of person who understands that the founding of our country was based on the ability to retain personal liberty and the sovereignty of the nation then it stands to reason that if you can't get people to agree that something needs to be changed, you simply don't change it. But this makes no sense to the authoritarian and it makes no sense to the communist. They always want to change things until they have all the power and they can do whatever they want. They want to be able to make changes. And if the people won't go along with them, if the people can't form a consensus, then they have a problem because to them, changes must be made. 
And so rather than understanding you can't move forward without a consensus, you try to do away with the idea of a consensus even being possible. Joe Biden is pretending to defend the concept and the ideals of democracy while explicitly making the argument that democracy is not sufficient and may not even be possible. And this isn't some brand new notion that has only popped up in 2022 as a result of our technology and interconnectedness. This sort of thinking has a long history, and we saw all of the worst results of it throughout the 20th century. To illustrate his point, Biden cited Chinese dictator Xi Jinping and democratically elected Georgia Maloney of Italy. You just saw what's happened in Italy in that election, he said. And the reason I bother to say that is we can't be sanguine about what's happening here either. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I don't want to understate it. Biden went on to suggest that MAGA Republicans pose a similar risk to democracy in the United States, arguing that a system of government can't function if one side refuses to accept the outcome of an election. And there we have it. You are a fascist. You hate democracy if you refuse to accept the outcome of a fraudulent and stolen election with overwhelming evidence of fraud and maladministration and malfeasance and a complete and total failure to follow the law as written with no recourse for anyone who objects to that. They literally changed laws outside the bounds of the Constitution in multiple states. They shouldn't have certified the elections anywhere, but no one's allowed to say anything about it or you're attacking democracy. Joe Biden is arguing against the purpose and usefulness of democracy and saying everyone else is doing it. And that's funny because the fake administration's allies in the EU aren't accepting the result of the Italian election. Now, they're not saying that the election was stolen. They've just declared that the people of Italy don't actually have the right to make the decision they made. Ursula von der Leyen the president of the European Commission said they have tools to deal with it if Italians make the difficult decision. If they vote for Georgia Maloney, well, the European Commission has the ability to respond to that as needed to make up for this terrible choice the people of Italy have made. And it's also worth noting that the fact Democrats and complicit Republican communists have created this election fraud system and put it in place and used it again and again and again over the last couple of decades should tell you that they are not prepared to accept the results of any election. They're not prepared to accept the results of elections before they even happen because they know how the people are going to vote and they simply can't allow it. So they create a system that will allow them to steal elections. And then anyone who notices is accused of not respecting the outcome of elections, therefore a threat to democracy. And if you want to just take it a little further you begin calling them a fascist. And of course, all of this is projection because there is nothing about Georgia Maloney that's fascist. And despite the distorted history that we've all been fed for a very long time, there's nothing right wing about fascism. This is from fee.org, F-E-E, the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from November 27th, 2021. There's no denying the socialist roots of fascism. In the past few decades, there has been a deep discussion about the ideological roots of fascism and above all, a great misunderstanding about the collectivist principles that this authoritarian movement promulgated. To understand this ideology better, it is necessary to know in depth the life, beliefs and principles of both its political leaders such as Benito Mussolini, and its philosophical leaders, such as Giovanni Gentile. Mussolini was an Italian military man, journalist, and politician who was a member of the Italian Socialist Party for 14 years. 
In 1910, he was appointed editor of the weekly La Lotta de Classe, The Class Struggle. And the following year, he published an essay entitled The Trentino as Seen by a Socialist. His journalism and political activism led him to prison, but soon after he was released, the Italian Socialist Party, increasingly strong and having achieved an important victory at the Congress of Reggio Emilia, put him in charge of the Milanese newspaper Avanti. This intense political activism was followed by World War I, which marked a turning point in Mussolini's life. In the beginning, the leader of the Socialist Party was part of an anti-interventionist movement, which opposed Italy's participation in World War I. However, he later joined the interventionist group, which earned him expulsion from the Socialist Party. Mussolini participated in the war and went on to take advantage of the dissatisfaction of the Italian people due to the few benefits obtained by the Treaty of Versailles. Then he blamed his former comrades of the Socialist Party for it. And that is when he started the formation of the Fasci Italiani di Combattimento, which later would become the Italian Fascist Party. Based strongly on the nationalist sentiments that flourished as a result of the combat, Mussolini came to power by the hand of violence, fighting against the traditional socialists and shielding himself in the famous squadron of the black shirts. It was only then that the ideological complex of fascism would begin to take shape. Practically everyone knows that Karl Marx is the ideological father of communism and socialism, and that Adam Smith is the father of capitalism and economic liberalism. Do you know, in contrast, who the mind behind fascism is? It's very likely that you don't, and I can tell you in advance that the philosopher behind fascism was also an avowed socialist. Giovanni Gentile, a neo-Hegelian philosopher, was the intellectual author of The Doctrine of Fascism, which he wrote in conjunction with Benito Mussolini. Gentile's sources of inspiration were thinkers such as Hegel, Nietzsche, and also Karl Marx. Gentile went so far as to declare Fascism is a form of socialism. In fact, it is its most viable form. One of the most common reflections on this is that fascism is itself socialism based on national identity. Gentile believed that all private action should be oriented to serve society. He was against individualism. For him, there was no distinction between private and public interest. In his economic postulates, he defended compulsory state corporatism, wanting to impose an autarkic state, basically the same recipe that Hitler would use years later. So the philosophical father of fascism believes that all private action, economic action, should be oriented to serve society. Now, that is clearly in direct opposition to virtually everything our society is based on, and it's certainly in opposition to capitalism. He was against individualism, which is the philosophical polar opposite of Americanism. And for him, there was no distinction between private and public interest. And we hear often from our own government about public-private partnerships. That is a step in the process to nationalizing industry and nationalizing corporations. And yet it is packaged and sold to us as just a lot of powerful organizations cooperating for our benefit It is always sold as something that serves society at large. And that explanation already assumes that society is more important than the individual. And compulsory state corporatism is basically the Chinese economic model. They call it state capitalism. Gentile and another group of philosophers created the myth of socialist nationalism, in which a country well-directed by a superior group could subsist without international trade as long as all individuals submitted to the designs of the government. The aim was to create a corporate state. It must be remembered that Mussolini came from the traditional Italian Socialist Party, but due to the rupture with this traditional Marxist movement and due to the strong nationalist sentiment that prevailed at the time, the bases for creating the new nationalist socialism, which they called fascism, were overturned. Fascism nationalized the arms industry. 
However, unlike traditional socialism, it did not consider that the state should own all the means of production, but more that it should dominate them. The owners of industries could, quote unquote, keep their businesses as long as they served the directives of the state. These business owners were supervised by public officials and paid high taxes. Essentially, private property was no longer a thing. It also established the tax on capital, the confiscation of goods of religious congregations and the abolition of Episcopal rents. Statism was the key to everything. Thanks to the nationalist and collectivist discourse, all the efforts of the citizens had to be in favor of the state. And it's worth noting that that, too, is in opposition to what we call nationalism in the United States when it is referred to by conservatives. A nationalist is a person who cares about the sanctity of the nation and prioritizes their nation above others. In the same way, you would care about the sanctity and protection of your own home and you would prioritize the good of your own family above the good of other families. And that's not about moral value as much as it's about responsibility. The locus of responsibility for the individual is that person and their family. And then you can essentially do as well as your abilities and ambitions allow. Everyone is responsible for their own family, their own home, because the alternative is to transfer those responsibilities to a governing body. And that's exactly what statists want to do. They don't believe the individual has the capacity or competence to handle these things for themselves. So they want the state to do it. And in pursuit of that, they have to seize powers for the state from the individual. So nationalism in that sense is entirely different than what they're talking about, which is nationalizing everything, the nation taking everything and then deciding for the people what's best. Fascism claimed to oppose liberal capitalism, but also international socialism, hence the concept of a third way, the same position that would be held by Argentine Peronism years later. This opposition to international socialism and communism is precisely what has caused so much confusion in the ideological location of fascism, Nazism, and also Peronism. Having opposed the traditional internationalist Marxist left, these were attributed to the current of ultra-right movements, when the truth is that, as has been demonstrated, their centralized economic policies obeyed collectivist and socialist principles, openly opposing capitalism and the free market, favoring nationalism and autarky. In that sense, as established by the philosopher creator of fascist ideology, Giovanni Gentile, fascism is another form of socialism. Ergo, it was not a battle of left against right, but a struggle between different left-wing ideologies, an internationalist and a nationalist one. In fact, in 1943, Benito Mussolini promoted the socialization of the economy, also known as fascist socialization. For this process, Mussolini sought the advice of the founder of the Italian Communist Party, Niccolo Bambacci. The communist was the main intellectual author of the Verona Manifesto, the historical declaration with which fascism promoted this process of economic socialization to deepen anti-capitalism and autarkism, and in which Italy became known as the Italian Social Republic. On April 22, 1945, in Milan, the fascist leader would declare the following. Our programs are definitely equal to our revolutionary ideas, and they belong to what in democratic regimes is called left. Our institutions are a direct result of our programs, and our ideal is the labor state. In this case, there can be no doubt. We are the working class in struggle for life and death against capitalism. We are the revolutionaries in search of a new order. If this is so, to invoke help from the bourgeoisie by waving the red peril is an absurdity. The real scarecrow, the real danger, the threat against which we fight relentlessly comes from the right. 
It is not at all in our interest to have the capitalist bourgeoisie as an ally against the threat of the red peril. Even at best, it would be an unfaithful ally, which is trying to make us serve its ends, as it has done more than once with some success. I will spare words as it is totally superfluous. In fact, it is harmful because it makes us confuse the types of genuine revolutionaries of whatever hue with the man of reaction who sometimes uses our very language. And the author notes at the end, six days after these statements, Benito Mussolini would be captured and shot. So basically, Mussolini's fascism was just Marxism, but centered around the state. He took advantage of nationalist sentiments in the post-war period for his rise to power. And once in power, he believed he was going to be able to turn Italy into a communist state. And I know, I know it's a socialist state, which is so much different. But the point is, there's absolutely nothing right wing about fascism. There's nothing right wing about Nazism. There's nothing right wing about socialism or democratic socialism or communism. Those are all part of leftism and they are inherent in the left in the leftist ideology. They are just different versions of the same thing. Collectivism is the issue. The eradication of the individual is the issue. And once you move to global communism, the eradication of the nation is the issue. And of course, that's a necessary aspect because you can't have sovereign individuals without sovereign nations. Certainly not in the future our betters have prepared for us. But none of that matters because there was a very successful switcheroo executed in the last 75 years in the United States that has somehow taught our society that socialism and communism are on the left and fascism and Nazism are on the right. But there's no justification for that whatsoever. They are happy to perpetuate this myth because it's useful for them. They're actually using Georgia Maloney's election to call MAGA Republicans fascists. But every possible justification for that label breaks down almost immediately. And of course, they don't care about that either because they know who their audience is and they know that their audience is never going to check. They're never going to think about any of it. They simply accept it. They know that the fascist label means bad guy. They know that they're the good guys. Therefore, MAGA Republicans are definitely the bad guys and all bad guys are the same. So MAGA Republicans are fascists. That's as far through this as they ever get. So when you're around child brains and they're talking about Nazism and fascism, it's important to remind them that those are also movements of and from leftist ideology. And all of them believe that they are making progress for society, that they are moving ever closer to the perfect utopia and that they are about to fix everything for everyone as soon as you give them all the power because they're the only ones capable of making decisions. And this is present in all of leftist ideology, which is why it fits so neatly with the elitism that we see from the left and from complicit rhinos and Republican communists. They know best. The people are too stupid, so they'll make all the decisions. And if the people get upset with those decisions, if they try to vote us out, and surely they will, because the people are not going to like the decisions that ruin their lives so that we can have more power, we are going to call them a threat to democracy. And if they choose to persist, if they choose to vote against our interests, well, we're just going to rig all the elections and make them believe that they've continued to vote in favor of all our positions. And if they don't believe it, even though we've showed them that, look, your whole society agrees with us and not with you, 
then we'll just call them crazy. We'll call them lunatics. We'll call them conspiracy theorists. If they keep going, we're going to call them extremists and domestic terrorists and white supremacists and science deniers and vaccine deniers and climate deniers. Oh, we're going to call them QAnon. We're going to call them MAGA Republicans. And if they ever get behind some sort of leader, oh, we will destroy that leader. And in the process, we're going to destroy all of them, you know, to save democracy for the good of everyone. Now, changing subjects without a segue. I want to jump around a little bit and hit a couple short stories that I just want to make sure are on your radar. The first is from Reuters. Exclusive. Brands blast Twitter for ads next to child pornography accounts. This is just out today. This is something I personally have known about for quite a while. I have discussed the case before Genevieve Morton versus Twitter. It is about exactly this issue and how a model's copyrighted images were repurposed for use in ads for sites hosting illicit pornography. Some major advertisers, including Dyson, Mazda, Forbes, and PBS Kids, have suspended their marketing campaigns or removed their ads from parts of Twitter because their promotions appeared alongside tweets soliciting child pornography, the companies told Reuters. DirecTV and ThoughtWorks also told Reuters late on Wednesday they have paused their advertising on Twitter. Brands ranging from Walt Disney Company, NBC Universal, and Coca-Cola to a children's hospital were among more than 30 advertisers that appeared on the profile pages of Twitter accounts peddling links to the exploitative material, according to a Reuters review of accounts identified in new research about child sex abuse online from cybersecurity group Ghost Data. Some of the tweets include keywords related to rape and teens and appeared alongside promoted tweets from corporate advertisers, the Reuters review found. In one example, a promoted tweet for shoe and accessories brand Cole Hahn appeared next to a tweet in which a user said they were, quote, trading teen slash child content. We are horrified, David Maddox, brand president at Cole Hahn, told Reuters after being notified that the company's ads appeared alongside such tweets. Either Twitter is going to fix this or we'll fix it by any means we can, which includes not buying Twitter ads. In another example, a user tweeted searching for content of young girls only, no boys, which was immediately followed by a promoted tweet for Texas-based Scottish Rite Children's Hospital. Scottish Rite did not return multiple requests for comment. In a statement, Twitter spokesperson Celeste Carswell said the company, quote, has zero tolerance for child sexual exploitation, end quote, and is investing more resources dedicated to child safety, including hiring for new positions to write policy and implement solutions. Oh, what a fix. She adds that Twitter is working closely with its advertising clients and partners to investigate and take steps to prevent the situation from happening again. Twitter's challenges in identifying child abuse content were first reported in an investigation by tech news site The Verge in late August. The emerging pushback from advertisers that are critical to Twitter's revenue stream is reported here by Reuters for the first time. Like all social media platforms, Twitter bans depictions of child sexual exploitation, which are illegal in most countries but it permits adult content generally and is home to a thriving exchange of pornographic imagery, which comprises about 13% of all content on Twitter, according to an internal company document seen by Reuters. So basically, most of Twitter is just pornography and bots. Twitter declined to comment on the volume of adult content on the platform. Shocking. Ghost data identified the more than 500 accounts that openly shared or requested child sexual abuse material over a 20 day period this month. Twitter failed to remove more than 70% of the accounts during the study period, according to the group, which shared the findings exclusively with Reuters. And this isn't something that just started in the last 20 days, by the way. This is Twitter's pattern. Twitter wouldn't even remove the claims that the Morton case highlighted 
even after Twitter knew that the copyrighted images and claims made under the uh, DMCA were being used to advertise illicit pornography. Reuters could not independently confirm the accuracy of ghost data's finding in full, but reviewed dozens of accounts that remained online and were soliciting materials for 13 plus and young looking nudes. After Reuters shared a sample of 20 accounts with Twitter last Thursday, the company removed about 300 additional accounts from the network, but more than 100 others still remained on the site the following day, according to Ghost Data and a Reuters review. Reuters then on Monday shared the full list of more than 500 accounts after it was furnished by Ghost Data, which Twitter reviewed and permanently suspended for violating its rules, said Twitter's Carswell on Tuesday. In an email to advertisers on Wednesday morning ahead of the publication of this story, Twitter said it, quote, discovered that ads were running within profiles that were involved with publicly selling or soliciting child sexual abuse material. Andrea Stropa, the founder of Ghost Data, said the study was an attempt to assess Twitter's ability to remove the material. He said he personally funded the research after receiving a tip about the topic. Twitter's transparency reports on its website show it suspended more than 1 million accounts last year for child sexual exploitation. It made about 87,000 reports to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a government-funded nonprofit that facilitates information sharing with law enforcement, according to that organization's annual report. Twitter needs to fix this problem ASAP, and until they do, we are going to cease any further paid activity on Twitter said a spokesperson for Forbes. And the article goes on with quotes from the companies who were advertising, claiming that they would never be involved in that sort of thing, even Disney. And you can read all that if you want. But let's find out a bit more about Andrea Stropa of Ghost Data. This is from a little bio that appears on Huffington Post. He is listed as an internet security researcher. Andrea Stropa was born in Rome in 1994. He deals with IT security. He is part of a team of researchers divided between Italy, Great Britain, and the United States. He actively participates in conferences of various kinds, from cybersecurity to hacking to the World Economic Forum. He is a staff member of the hacker conference, Hack in the Box. He writes about technology and cybersecurity for the World Economic Forum. In the past, he has collaborated with La Stampa and La Repubblica. So he writes about cybersecurity for the World Economic Forum, and now he runs this organization, Ghost Data, that is, quote unquote, exposing Twitter. And knowing that, it's pretty easy to see that this exposure is almost definitely another limited hangout. They are letting a little bit of the information out making it sound like it's not a big deal. None of these companies are involved. They are all very, very upset to hear this news and they may stop advertising on Twitter. But don't worry, we've only studied this for about 20 days this year. So focus on that and don't focus on the fact that Twitter has been doing this for the entire time. So this seems to me like just the latest in a series of limited hangouts from the tech companies. It's also worth noting that Elon Musk is scheduled to be deposed in his case against Twitter starting a week from today on October 6th. Continuing on in the tech world, this is from datacenterdynamics.com. Europe could face a winter of mobile network blackouts. Mobile networks across Europe could start going down this winter as operators warn that the energy crisis may lead to regular power cuts and energy rationing. This has led to a fear within the telecoms industry, notes Reuters, which reports that industry officials fear that a challenging winter could put telecoms infrastructure to the test. And because you know they're about to heap it on, here we go. The potential power issues have been fueled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with Russia deciding to halt gas supplies via Europe's key supply route in the wake of this conflict. Well, this was written today. Apparently, they're unclear about the fact that the pipelines have been blown up, or so we're told. Four telecoms executives say that there are currently not enough backup systems in many European countries to handle widespread power cuts. 
This potentially increases the prospect of mobile phone outages. This has led some European countries to try and ensure communications can resume as normal, even if power cuts end up exhausting backup batteries. Europe has nearly half a million telecom towers, with most providing battery backups that last around half an hour to run the mobile antennas. French electricity distributor Anidis, or maybe it's Anadi, has put forward plans for a worst case scenario that will see power cuts lasting up to two hours, affecting different parts of the country on a rotational basis, notes Reuters. Any blackouts would exclude hospitals, police and government facilities. Sources claim that the French government, telecom operators and Anadi have discussed the issue over the summer. Maybe we'll improve our knowledge on the matter by this winter, but it's not easy to isolate a mobile antenna from the rest of the network, said a French finance ministry official with knowledge of the discussion speaking to Reuters. Swedish, German and Italian telcos have also raised concerns while Nokia and Ericsson are working with mobile network operators to mitigate the impact of potential power shortages. In the data center industry, the likes of Equinix and Digital Realty have increased their diesel reserves in preparation for potential grid and fuel supply issues. Equinix usually fills its tanks to 60% capacity, but is now raising that to 90% across many of its sites. One of the UK's largest equipment rental groups is also stockpiling extra diesel generators in anticipation of high demand going into winter. UK telecoms company BT recently told the Financial Times that it was not currently seeking more backup power for the winter, but was assessing which of its non-critical hardware could be switched off. So you need to understand that if you are unable to communicate this winter in Europe, it's Russia's fault. It's not the fault of the green agenda. It's not the fault of the global communist agenda. It's not because they've turned off nuclear power plants and pretended that their windmills and solar panels could do the job. It's Russia's fault because Russia is going to decide not to deliver the resources. And we're just going to simply ignore the fact that the Nord Stream pipelines have been taken offline due to acts of terrorism. So if you're freezing to death this winter in Europe and you can't even tell anybody about it, or call for help, well, it's Russia's fault. Now, we've been discussing the potential for illegal aliens to vote in U.S. elections for the last couple of weeks, and on Sunday, this article appeared in Fox News. California Governor Newsom signs bill allowing illegal immigrants to obtain a state ID. California residents can now acquire a state ID regardless of immigration status under a law signed by Governor Gavin Newsom on Friday. We're a state of refuge, a majority minority state where 27% of us are immigrants, Newsom said after signing the legislation. That's why I'm proud to announce the signing of today's bills to further support our immigrant community, which makes our state stronger every single day. 27% of California are immigrants. A law passed in 2013 allows California residents to obtain a driver's license, but the bill that was signed Friday will allow non-driving residents to acquire a government-issued ID, even if they are not a legal immigrant. So basically, these IDs are available if you can't pass a driver's test. But I am sure we will hear very soon that they are still far too difficult to get for black voters. The bill's sponsors framed ID cards as passports to economic and societal participation that allows individuals to access banking services, obtain government benefits, and acquire health care. Huh, that's amazing. They can do all of the things that citizens can do, except vote. They're never going to be allowed to vote. Their ID cards are going to be passports to economic and societal participation. Now, we've kind of heard a similar concept in the last year or so, a passport for economic and societal participation. Now, what was that? Why does that sound so familiar? Oh, it was the vaccine passport they kept proposing. The vaccine passport would allow you to participate in society. 
because everyone knows that the unvaccinated should not be allowed to participate in society. Remember those good old days when everyone was still pretending that the vaccines were very safe and effective and didn't kill anybody. And now people have totally realized it and they're just simply silent about it. They're not willing to punish their government for it because they themselves got vaccinated. And, you know, if you take it too seriously, you might have to deal with the consequences of your own decision. And to be serious for a second, it's really too bad that the vaccinated who have now realized how bad a decision that is, don't take it more seriously because they should be focused on fixing that terrible decision by strengthening their immune system and attempting to figure out if there is any way possible for them to flush all the awful shit that was injected into them through their own choosing out of their systems. About 22% of California's nearly 11 million immigrants are in the United States illegally, according to the Public Policy Institute of California. And hey, if there's one organization we can definitely trust, it's the Public Policy Institute of California. But let's assume that they are right for the first time ever. That is still 2.42 million illegal immigrants and that number is larger than the population of 15 different states. One day after signing the bill, Newsom traveled to Texas, where he targeted Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for busing and flying migrants to blue cities. And despite California's 2017 ban on official travel to the Lone Star State, California often likes to ban travel, official travel to other states to score political PR points, but of course they never follow their own rules. It is hilarious that Governor Newsom is traveling around to campaign for Democrat candidates when Joe Biden won't even do it. But it's so great that Gavin Newsom is prepared to get all of these illegal aliens into the California system. The Washington Times published an editorial on this and wrote issuing state identification cards is a form of recognizing one's legitimacy, which means the state of California is either effectively disregarding or potentially even preempting the federal naturalization system. And here's some more information from the California Globe in March of this year. Assembly Bill 1766 called California IDs for All, authored by Assemblyman Mark Stone, Democrat, would require the Department of Motor Vehicles to issue a restricted identification card to an eligible applicant who is unable to submit satisfactory proof that their presence in the United States is authorized under federal law if they provide satisfactory proof of identity and California residency. If passed, the DMV would have to begin issuing them by January 2024. So they're going to be issued by the DMV. You know, the place where you get your driver's license. And when you sign up for your driver's license, they register you to vote. So basically, they have expanded their illegal voter registration system to include people who can't pass the driver's test and can't pass the written licensing test. I mean, at this point, why do they even have to bother going to the DMV? Why can't they just do it online? And hey, they're immigrants who can't speak English and can't use computers, right? That's what we're going to tell everybody. So why would you even want them to sign up for their own IDs? California, the state could just do that for them. I mean, they barely even need the illegal alien attached to the process at any point. They could just make up new people and put them into the system. Perfect. That's the California way. Now, also connected to the ongoing conversation we've been having about illegal aliens coming to the United States and voting and that being one of the key aspects of the slave trade, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas has made at least some move to counteract that. Last week on September 21st, the governor's office released this statement to the press. 
Governor Greg Abbott today issued an executive order designating Mexican drug cartels as terrorist organizations and instructing the Texas Department of Public Safety to take immediate action to keep Texans safe amid the growing national fentanyl crisis. At a roundtable discussion and press conference in Midland today, the governor also sent a letter to President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris requesting federal terrorist classifications for the Sinaloa cartel and Jalisco New Generation cartel, as well as other cartels producing and distributing deadly fentanyl. Fentanyl is a clandestine killer and Texans are falling victim to the Mexican cartels that are producing it, said Governor Greg Abbott. Cartels are terrorists and it's time we treated them that way. In fact, more Americans died from fentanyl poisoning in the past year than all terrorist attacks across the globe in the past 100 years. In order to save our country, particularly our next generation, we must do more to get fentanyl off our streets. Governor Abbott also directed DPS and law enforcement agencies to identify Texas gangs that support Mexican drug cartels and seize their assets in order to disrupt cartel networks operating in Texas communities, as thousands of Texans have been poisoned unwittingly by counterfeit pills laced with the deadly synthetic opioid. And apparently they must be getting really good at testing for the presence of fentanyl much better than they are at testing for the presence of COVID. Otherwise, we might begin to suspect that all these instantaneous deaths of young and healthy people might be caused by something else. With Mexican drug cartels disguising fentanyl as counterfeit pills and targeting children with rainbow fentanyl pills, the governor emphasizes that immediate decisive action is needed from the Biden administration to combat this deadly crisis impacting the nation. So the fentanyl thing is weird in itself. It's very strange that for the past few weeks, they've been pushing this idea that all of a sudden children will be dying from fentanyl and not from anything else for sure. But the most interesting aspect is that the cartels are now being labeled terrorist organizations. So we are basically one connection away from being presented with a much more cohesive picture. And that cohesive picture is that globalist NGOs are working hand in hand with these cartels to operate the slave trade. And Joe Biden's illegitimate regime is supporting and allowing all of it. Joe Biden's fake administration is now a state sponsor and state partner of terrorism. And I know that people will think I'm being hyperbolic right now or exaggerating, but those are the facts. Joe Biden's illegitimate regime and other regimes for him and state regimes that exist right now, like the one in California, are literally partnered with cartels, cartels are terrorist organizations. These things are directly linked. There is no hyperbole involved. And then finally, if you haven't gotten your full dose of political crime and corruption, this is the Daily Caller from Tuesday. Big Pharma Company pays $900 million settlement for allegedly bribing doctors. Biogen, a Massachusetts-based pharmaceutical company, will pay $900 million to settle allegations that it bribed doctors to prescribe the company's multiple sclerosis drugs, the Department of Justice announced on Monday evening. The suit was initially brought by former employee Michael Bauduniak, who alleged that the company offered or paid out kickbacks in the form of speaking fees and consultancy fees, which resulted in false claims being made to Medicaid and Medicare, according to the DOJ. The Civil War Era False Claims Act allows private individuals to file on behalf of the federal government in exchange for a portion of the recovered funds, netting Bauduniak approximately $250 million of the $843.8 million awarded to the federal government, while $56.2 million will be divided amongst 15 states, according to the Wall Street Journal. Biogen believes its intent and conduct was at all times lawful and appropriate, and Biogen denies all allegations raised in this case. 
the company said in a statement to the Daily Caller News Foundation. Biogen also noted that the U.S. government did not directly intervene and that a settlement was not an admission of guilt. You got that? They didn't do anything, but they're still willing to pay out almost a billion dollars. And this, my friends, is the purpose of settling a lawsuit. You can claim that you weren't guilty. You can have the other party sign an NDA. You take the financial hit and then you move on like nothing was ever wrong. They can make statements like this. Biogen believes its intent and conduct was at all times lawful and appropriate. But you just heard they were paying out kickbacks and they were hiding them by calling them speaking fees and consultancy fees. Baduniak diligently pursued this matter on behalf of the United States for over seven years, said Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Brian Boynton, head of the Justice Department's Civil Division in the DOJ's press release. The settlement announced today underscores the critical role that whistleblowers play in complementing the United States' use of the False Claims Act to combat fraud affecting federal health care programs. The lawsuit's conclusion comes as a recent study alleged that some pharmaceutical companies were avoiding anti-kickback provisions by donating to charities that would in turn purchase their products. By donating to charities for diseases with limited treatment options, companies were allegedly able to induce purchases of their drugs in violation of anti-kickback laws. The DOJ did not immediately respond to the Daily Caller News Foundation's request for comment. And for a little more on these deals, the Daily Caller covered this on September 7th of this year. Big Pharma is paying charities to buy drugs from them. Report finds. Major pharmaceutical companies are donating to charities that then turn around and purchase their drugs at high rates, circumventing anti-kickback laws, according to a new study in Health Affairs. Donations from drug manufacturers to nonprofits have often been profitable, even if only a small number of patients go on to purchase their products, the researchers from Harvard, Northwestern, and the University of Southern California found. By targeting charities created for specific conditions, which often have very few treatment options, drug companies effectively paid for nonprofits to drive patients straight into their arms for years. After examining the spending of 3 million Medicare Advantage patients between 2010 and 2017, researchers estimated that the portion of Medicare Advantage spending that qualified for charity assistance surged from 29% to 41% during that time period. Half the drug spending for any given medical condition could be tied to a single pharmaceutical company on average. Isn't that incredible? All you need to do is find a charity or a nonprofit to be the middleman of this situation. Now, who would orchestrate such a thing? Who would have this sort of charity or nonprofit? And what would these charities and nonprofits intend to do? Would they, you know, like try to vaccinate all of Africa for malaria? Who would do something like that in a world that Bill Gates didn't already do something like that in? I hope they're only doing this for multiple sclerosis drugs and that they stopped seven years ago. It would be terrible to think that they're just still doing this and doing it for things like COVID drugs and vaccines. That would mean the pharmaceutical companies and major nonprofits are corrupt and that could never happen. In fact, they're the people saving everyone, and especially Africans. And if you don't agree, you're racist. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me, and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com. 
And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!